The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. All right, we are live. Today we're going to talk about some Super Bowl memories. Not 100% with, I'm a little out of it. It's been um, a long week, and I just did an intake this morning, which was extremely long, but um, very interesting case. I actually tagged my Aunt Jackie on this one because my Uncle Sam was... Uncle Sam Ioli, amazing guy. Took me my first baseball game. Told my base first football game was a big part of my athletics growing up, and he lived 60 miles away in Philly. He used to make the trip, and he was such a great role model. He wasn't in my life as much as I would have hoped because of the distance and all that, but great guy. And the Super Bowl was one of the things we always used to talk on Super Bowl Sunday, break the games down. Just uh, amazing, man. So, with the Bengals being in the Super Bowl, it is very kind of special to me. Here's why. Ah, man. I feel old saying some of this stuff. Super Bowl 16. My first memory. Uh, The Bengals and the 49ers. And Joe Montana wins his first Super Bowl. And the Bengals played their hearts out. But they lost. And there was this play on fourth down that Dave Butt, the linebacker for the 49ers, shut down Charles Alexander on fourth and one. Might have changed the whole game. The Bengals were oh so close, but they just lost it. And then Super Bowl 23. The Bengals are making again. And they're playing Joe Montana again. These poor bastards. Every time the Bengals made to the bowl, they played Joe Montana. This one was weird. Stanley Wilson was a running back for the Bengals. And he tested positive for cocaine before the game. And he was never going to play again. And Stanley Wilson battling drug addiction for a while, and he went partying a couple nights before the game. And it really hurt the team. And they played their hearts out that game. Tim Crumry, who was an amazing defensive player, broke his leg in that game. He was having an amazing season, and it set the Bengals back. And the Bengals were so close to winning it. I remember calling Uncle Sam at halftime. And this is like, you're talking 1989 now, right? So he did the long-distance call with Uncle Sam. So one of the treats I did back then. We were poor back then. And Uncle Sam said, if the Bengals keep running the ball, the 49ers can't stop them. And this was a pretty cool time period. The Bengals had James Brooks. They had Icky Woods. It was his rookie year, doing a whole Icky Shuffle thing. This was the Bengals game to win. Um, they finally, it's their time, and Joe Montana is down, and this is the famous game on NFL Network they talk about, where everybody is tense, Joe Montana's doing a two-minute drill, 
and he looks into the crowd. He says to the guys in the huddle, oh, look, there's John Candy. May John Candy rest in peace. John Candy was in the end zone watching the game. And Joe Montana points out, there's John Candy. And it just relaxed everybody. And Montana just went down the field, broke the Bengals' hearts. Now, you grow up near Philadelphia, you're always um, an Eagles fan, but the Bengals were certainly my second favorite team. I was always close with them. Raquel Munoz and I were talking today. Some of those Tiger helmets on there. There's something special about the Bengals. And in the 90s, growing up on my journey, I was always a big Jeff Blake fan. I remember like being in AOL chat rooms in the late 90s saying like Blake the Pickens all day long. And the Bengals were just horrible during this time period. Like they had no, it was just a bad organization. But they had talent, but it seemed like it was an organization that simply was never going to go anywhere. Remember when I passed the bar in 2008, and my Uncle Sam sent me a letter, and he put money in the car, and he's like, you're the real-life Rocky. And it was like kind of weird how my journey had like evolved into this. Now I'm a lawyer. That's hard to believe from where I came from. We would talk on the phone about the Bengals. We would just laugh about the Bengals for years. Unfortunately, my Uncle Sam died shortly after the Eagles won their first Super Bowl. And we talked on the phone that day. And I get it. Stafford, good guy. But the fact that the Bengals are here, it just seems so weird. This organization was just so bad for so long. And I'm reading stuff online now that I'm arguably the best criminal defense lawyer in the state of Michigan and the Bengals are in the Super Bowl and it just feels like life has changed so much for me. And I can't help but think of Uncle Sam today. For the Bengals to even be here 33 years since their last Super Bowl is such an amazing thing. I just felt like, wow. The Bengals being in the Super Bowl is such a special thing to me. When I think back of those Jeff Blake years and the Carl Pickens years and how horrible this team was for so long, I just feel like this, guys. I feel like the Rams have bought their way into success. And there's no shame in that. The NFL's a business. But they trade it for Stafford. They trade it for Von Miller. They got OBJ in free agency. They have a huge payroll. I mean, they've made some wise decisions and they mortgaged their draft picks. And they deserve to be where they're at. Great team. It was always a special thing on Super Bowl Sunday for my uncle and I to just go over the game. We would talk before the game. We would talk briefly at halftime. Miss my Uncle Sam a lot. What an amazing man. Um, times with him and Aunt Jackie in my youth. That was really special to me. I'm thinking of who they. I'm thinking of overcoming obstacles. And I'm thinking of journeys. And a lot of nostalgia hitting here today. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311.
This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. 1998. I'm driving with Q back in Jersey. Q, my best friend growing up. By far. And he lived in Epsecan Highlands at the time. And Epsecan Highlands was where Stockton was, because Stockton College was in Galilee Township, Galilee, whatever. And we're driving one night, and Q goes, Bambi. Bambi. And I'm like, Bambi? Bambi? What are you talking about? He goes, oh, there's deer running across here. And I start laughing. And he's like, what's so funny? I said, deer. So it's poor deer. I I can't imagine somebody being hit by a deer. It's just ridiculous. And Q said to me, one day, you're going to learn respect for deer. And I'm laughing. Okay, whatever. I would learn respect for deer. We're going to talk about that today. I am Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Gravel and Associates. And today we're going to talk about college debate tournaments, which were known as forensic tournaments. We're going to talk about how you learned respect for deer and sober bar crawls. My God, I'm looking at myself right now. I've got a baseball cap on that looks like I found on the street. No shave. Just came from a brutal workout with Adam's son. Putting a few hours in on some cases, man. And I'll tell you, I just got to get some content done today because tomorrow I might be out of the loop. And I got to keep grinding with this content. You guys are demanding content. By the way, Josh Strickland, that was great last night. When I heard the Flintstones theme at the end, I literally was laughing my ass off. And I was sore from the gym. I laughed so much, I was literally in pain. So, 1998, I'm at Stockton College. And one of my professors was Chuck McGeever. You guys know Chuck McGeever from last night's jail visit. Heard me talk about Chuck a few times. Interesting guy. Chuck was my professor a number of classes, and he was also the debate coach. And Chuck wanted me to come out for the debate team. Now, I didn't realize that the debate team was a big thing towards getting tenure. He made this whole big spiel. Like, I know you're working full-time and you're in college full-time, but you got to come out to this debate tournament. We need you on this team. And I'm thinking, okay, let's debate. I like public speaking, sure. And we're going to George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Now, here's the best way I could put these tournaments. The tourneys would come up, right? And there would be people from Harvard, Yale, all these different schools would come out. And this was like their idea of a good time. Remember one Sunday, I'm watching the um, Eagles-Redskin game, and somebody was screaming at me, how could you watch football when there's a debate tournament going on? Hmm. So I kind of knew that I really wasn't one of the normal ones here. Uh, It was different, which was fine. It was a sign of things to come. And Chuck told us, told the team, there were a few of us on the team. I won't mention some of their names today uh, for a lot of reasons, but there were like five of us on this team. And Chuck said, well, we're going against the Ivy Leaguers. And when we're going against the Ivy Leaguers, you're probably not going to win. But the whole point is that you look good, you make an effort, and Stockton will give funding for whatever. And I remember saying to Chuck at this team meeting, well, why the f*** can't we win? It's like, well, Bill, you know, they're Ivy Leaguers. They talk about 
education at the dinner table, um, like your family would talk about sports. I'm a little annoyed at this point. And I'm thinking, okay, so these f***ing Ivy Leaguers, you think they're smarter than me? Did you see my IQ test? Did you see my GPA? And I'm doing this with dyslexia, which nobody f***ing knew at this time, so... Because I think you are like a brilliant mind from the inner city, but you're going against Ivy Leaguers, so don't beat yourself up if you don't win. I mean, just tell me I can't do something, and like my mind's set now. I'm gonna beat these pieces of shit. And I don't even know them. Okay, they weren't mean to me at these tournaments, but the fact that there was this aura about them that they're going to be more intelligent and more articulate than myself because they went to an Ivy League school kind of pissed me off. And that theme has kind of lasted in criminal law. I digress. So, we go to the tournament, and um, I made it through the first round, I made it through the second round, I made it through the third round. And Chuck's like, oh my god, you're advancing. Why wouldn't I advance? I know the subjects. I'm going to kick their ass today. And we, um, <laughs> we get to... The finals and there's like one kid from Harvard one young woman from George Mason University who she was known as the best public speaker debater in the history of these tournaments like she won so many tournaments she's a teacher today out in Virginia we kept in touch a little bit excellent speaker and there was the Harvard there was the girl from George Mason there was a guy from Yale um, there was somebody from, like, Longwood, this other college, and there was me from Stockton. And <laughs> they, um, so when you get to the finals in this one particular thing, they give you topics. And you don't know what your topic's going to be. So the topics that were up for debate were, can Bob Dole win the 2000 presidential election? Okay, I'm on top of that. What do you think about technology in the stock market? Will tech stocks continue to boom? Got knowledge of that. A few other topics. And the fifth topic was... And this was... And I drew this fifth topic. Can a white man ever become part of the Black Panthers if they were transported back in time? And of course, that's the topic I drew. So now I'm arguing against these Ivy Leaguers, and I gotta argue why I should be a Black Panther. Okay. Hmm. Well, this is interesting. And you had like 20 minutes to prepare. Now, this is before the internet was on your phone, okay? We're talking 98. And I'm like looking some stuff about the Black Panthers. I know a little bit about them, but I don't really know what to say here how do i advocate to become part of this group now i was batting fourth the fifth right so i'm watching these other three and this is a new experience to me like i made it to the finals on pure grit and intellect but now it's like this outside the box thing which has always been my thing but i didn't expect this topic i was like please give me the bob dole topic i could talk politics all day long with this I can tell you how Bob Dole wants to do things with financial aid in 2000. Maybe he'll win this whole thing, which, you know, that didn't happen. But um, I didn't get the draw I wanted. So in these tournaments at the end, one of the things you did was, like, kind of tell a joke. 
and it was a joke that relayed to your topic. Now, what joke do I make about a white guy in 1998 wanting to be part of the Black Panthers? And can I transition it to 1998? I don't know what to say. And I mean, spoiler alert, I didn't win in the finals um, this year, that particular form. I won some other ones. But um, so I'm giving my speech. I got to make people laugh, right? That was the key here to the finals. Can you make people laugh? So I ended my speech by saying, I don't want to be a Carolina Panther. And I sure as hell don't want to be a Pink Panther. I want to be a Black Panther. That was good. The judge is going to look at me like, what did he just say? I don't want to be a Carolina Panther. I sure don't want to be a Pink Panther. I want to be a Black Panther. Wasn't the winning argument that day. So we won some trophies or whatever. So I was like, in the t I was like, think I was right third in the tournament. We get to the after dinner. Now the rest of the team is pissed off at me because they all lost like early in the tournament. And here I am with like a bunch of trophies which, hey, Chuck, take the trophies. I don't really care. Now, as we learned in some other things, Chuck kind of had a thing for me. So there was a really pretty waitress there. I gave her like a $20 tip, which was huge money for me back then. And I'm talking to this waitress. And Chuck gets really upset. Go, you know, you came here for a tournament, and now you're flirting with a waitress. But the tournament's over. I mean, I didn't put two and two together. The rest of the team's all pissed off at me. And we're at this after-dinner thing, and this one young woman from Harvard comes up to me, and she tells me how much she liked my poetry, and Chuck says in front of her, he writes crappy poetry. So now, in some ways, my debate coach, who is probably in love with me, is also cock-blocking me after I won some trophies for the team that he was bringing back to Stockton to try to help him get tenure. And remember the whole... Carolina pink Black Panther analogy, which I thought was funny. Nobody else really bought into it. So we're at this after dinner thing. And got the trophies, gave the chuck. So the team decides we're going on a bar crawl in uh, Fairfax. Okay. I don't really, I don't drink, I never drank. But I'll go there and I'm buying some of the guys' drinks. And they are drinking their ass off. And I'm sitting here drinking ginger ale and drinking cranberry juice. Ironically, at the end of the night, I'm the one that got sick. And Chuck says, well, how much how much ginger ale can you drink? Remember, I'm puking by having so many ginger ales. And the people like Danny, Johnny Black, and Johnny Red are just, they're fine. They're good to go. We get back to the hotel. And I guess the booze are kicking in with Chuck. I don't know. And he's jumping up and down. He goes, oh my God. He goes, we won. We won. We're going back with hardware. Hardware was the equivalent of trophies. So he's jumping up and down. I'm like, I'm really happy for you. Great. I mean, it didn't mean that much to me. I just wanted to beat the Ivy Leaguers. I'm really glad Chuck got these trophies. He took them home. He goes, can I have your trophies? Yeah. So full palm up. He smacks my ass as hard as he can. I'm like, what the f was that? He goes, oh, well, you're a big baseball guy. Uh-huh. 
Well, baseball, when they score a run, they slap each other's ass. Do you want to slap my ass? Like, no, I don't want to slap your ass. It was very... It was odd. We get home. We drive back to Jersey that night. Nobody's talking to me. I'm listening to my headphones with my Rocky uh, CD in. And they all want to hang out and drink. Now, it's like 3 o'clock in the morning. They want to go to a casino and drink. They want to go to a casino and drink. Like, I actually got a bartender in the casino at 10 a.m. I was the breaker bartender next. I had to work 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Then I had to get back to stop for my 8 o'clock classes. So there was no time for me to uh, drink or hang out with them. Get back and look out at home. So I got my little Le Mans, right? And I called Q up and said, hey, I actually won a few trophies. Um, Chuck uh, was really happy about it. So Q says to me, listen, be careful. You're driving at Stockton at night. I'm like, what's up? He goes, be careful of those deer. He goes, Bill, I'm telling you, watch your back with the deer. And I'm like, okay, the deer. Now I'm on my phone. Now keep this in mind. I got like my left hands on the phone. I got one hand on the wheel. I got this little tiny vehicle. And what you did at Stockton was you used to cut through the Stockton Medical Center. There was a hospital right across from the campus. And if you cut through the medical center, you jumped onto the um, highway quicker. So that's one of the things we always did. We cut through there, right? This is before Bluetooth, this is before you like had your headphones or were putting it on speaker, you know, it's 1998. So I'm on the phone with Q, I'm driving through the Stockton Medical Center. And I make the left into the center. And I said, oh my God, I swear to you guys, there were like 200 deer just f***ing chilling. And like, and I'm looking, I said, Q, I'm like surrounded by these deer. What the f do I do? He goes, oh, sh I don't know. And it felt like they were surrounding the car. Like to the left, to the right, there's this narrow thing at this. Highway. I mean, these deer, this is bad. This is their turf. Oh, it's three o'clock in the morning in the Pinelands of New Jersey. And these deer are here. And all my, okay, now I'm scared of deer because you got me. <laughs> I'm on their turf. I don't know what to do. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to like beep the horn. So I start beeping the horn and put my high beams on. That was not a good idea. <laughs> like the leader of the deer, he stared at me like, motherfucker, you're on our turf right now. And I'm like driving this little mods like five miles an hour. And I'm like, do I beep? Do I horn? I don't want to like floor it because they're like roaming across. You know, they're just... They're dancing, like, haha. Like, you walked into enemy territory right now. Here's these deer. Here's my little car. I'm laughing about deer in this friggin' area. And I am sitting in deer mania. Um, I'm rolling at five miles an hour. And it felt like it was the never-ending road, right? Slowly. And I'm looking to my left. looking to my right. looking to my left. looking to my right. And I see an opening. And I floor the in Le Mans as fast as I could which was probably like 40 miles an hour it was a piece of little car I got the hell away from the deer and I go home and Aunt Mare's like how was the trip? I said I'm not talking about the wedding I'm talking about the guy deer 
Oh, did you beat the Harvard kids? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. But Aunt Mare, these f***ing deer were surrounding my car. And, like, the deer became the story, not the tournament. So I see Chuck the next night at school, and I tell him about these deer. He goes, well, you know, if you would have just stayed at my place or come drink with us, this wouldn't have happened. I go tell Father Sullivan about the deer. Okay, you had to see these deer. Sullivan goes, hell, hey, ass, you're driving on their turf. What do you think is going to happen? Got home. Got a story. Beat the Ivy Leaguers. The deer scared the living shit out of me. Got sick drinking juice and soda while everybody else was getting drunk. Made some enemies that day. And whenever I'm against somebody for like an Ivy League, I think back to those tournaments. So I was like, hey, I could beat you. It was really cool sticking up their ass. The deer were a very odd story that encaptured it. 1998 was a really interesting year. The more I think back in 1998, it's like, holy shit. <laughs> weird shit happened that year. The jail visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Vermica's Bakery in Atlantic City has closed down. My God. How many more things from our youth are just going to be erased? I don't know. It got me thinking. I started thinking about things that changed from our youth. Five things came to mind personally that hit me. Besides Vermica's. When Panarelli's closed, when we left Willow Avenue in Ducktown, when we sold the Alki, the demolition of Veterans Stadium, and when St. James Rectory got demolished. <sighs> so today, I'm a little tired. I just went for a run, been working all day, hit the jail. Went to the gym, blah, blah, blah. I probably shouldn't go for a run before the lives, but got plenty of water here, so we're going to get through this. I'm Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grable and & Associates, and today we're going to talk about the closing of Formica's Bakery and some other things that basically got erased from our youth. Let's start with this. Ducktown, Atlantic City, 90s. Rough place, man. Really rough place. Where we lived was in this little enclave on Willow Avenue. Willow Avenue was about a block away from the White House sub shop. So what you would do is actually called a dead end. There was Clawson's Glass Company. There's the White House a block away. And there's these little tiny row homes. And here's our home. And there's a fence separating us from Pitney Village. And there's this big brick building, which was Patsy Wallace. I often attribute my fielding abilities to Patsy Wallace because it was this big brick building and you could throw baseballs there all hours of the night and the balls would come up weird. So when you played on AstroTurf as you got older, you were used to rough hops thanks to growing up in Ducktown. However, being white and growing up next to Pitney Village was not a treat. Let's be clear about that. It was, it was some crazy times. And there was one thing that really gave a sign of hope besides Trump Plaza. You guys heard about that one before, but the White House sub shop. And I, many friends worked at the White House sub shop. The White House sub shop 
in my opinion, makes the greatest cheesesteaks in the world. I remember going there as a kid, bringing subs home. You grew up on that sub shop. I remember going there with Skylar Davis. It was just a place where, no matter how bad the surrounding neighborhood was, the White House was an amazing sub shop. And one of the keys to the White House's success was the bread. If you've never been to Jersey, and you know, I don't have a lot of love for Jersey, but there is nothing quite in the world like Italian bread from South Jersey. And something about the water, the way they mix it, and you would hear the bread being made all hours of the night. And there were two places that made the bread. There was Formica's, which we're going to talk about today, and there was Panarelli's. And what they would do, the workers at Formica's and Panarelli's, is they would have like these shopping carts, right? And they would load it up with big brown bags full of Italian bread, and they would deliver it to the White House. And the White House was like nonstop. Um, it was just a place of peace, a place of safety, amidst all the chaos. Panarelli shut down years ago, and I was disappointed about that. Uh, I knew Salvi Panarelli, and one of the big things we used to do was go to Panarelli's for 35 cents, get your loaf of Italian bread. I think it was like three for a dollar, so you always got like three. And I'd bring two home for Aunt Mare and Mom, and then we would give one to our dogs, because our dogs loved Panarelli's Italian bread. Second to Panarelli's was Formica's. And there's always a big debate, like, what's the better Italian bread, Formica's or Panarelli's? I always preferred Panarelli's. Panarelli shut down, right? We still had Formica's, which was great bread. <sighs> And I saw Frankie Callan's Facebook post today about Formica shutting down. And then I saw Chris Foster's post about the royal family. And just so we understand, the royal family in Jersey, that's like the bread people. That's like our version of the royal family. And apparently Formica's got bought off by Norcos. And, you know, the thing about Formica's... It was one of the last things that really stood out from Atlantic City. You know, and you're in your 40s now, and you read about these articles online, and part of you, it hits you. You know, it hits you hard, because you start reflecting. You start reflecting about going to Formica's and getting a couple loaves of bread and their special Italian cookies and bringing it home to your family. I remember coming home from law school and Aunt Mary and Mom didn't drive you know if you know my family I was the first person to drive and we lived in Ventnor Heights now so when I would come home there were two demands like two standing orders go get my family White House subs no problem there and then pick up some extra loaves of bread and cookies from Formica's Bakery they were like mandatory must-dos. You get off the plane from Lansing, and you drive home, get your rental car or whatever, go to Ventnor, run home, kiss Aunt Mare, kiss Mom, pet the animals, and get your ass to the White House and Formigas and bring them back their dinner. That was mandatory, man. And I'll tell you, 
there was they're all gone now but i remember in my youth there was dysfunction in the house there's no question about that and it was four of us in that little house the little row home it was aunt mayor mom grandpa and me grandpa passed away uh sophomore year of high school which was really rough and there was a lot of sadness and sickness in the family. We were poor as dirt. But one of the things, like the big treat for us, was sitting down as a family once a week and eating a White House sub. That was like the equivalent of like going to a gourmet restaurant for us back in the day. And you knew that the lifeblood of that White House sub was Panarelli's or Formica's bread. It was, you know... It was fascinating. And then when you went to law school, you came home and you still enjoyed the subs and you enjoyed the bread. It wasn't that feeling, though, because when you were like dirt poor, it was like that big treat. Now it was like an amenity, which was cool. But now with the selling of it, it's like it all comes together. Like all these memories are just combining. I'm really going to miss the fact that one of the last things from our youth is now gone. So what I'm going to do in this reflection piece is talk about a few other things that happened along the way. Um, other things where it was time to move on. And you know, guys, closure's a bitch. Sometimes in life, things just have to end. Businesses have to close. Relationships have to go their separate ways. And in any situation, there's positive and there's negative. And with the positive and the negative, you know, you can't, you got to try to look at these things objectively. So with Formica's and Panarelli's, it was like a cool treat. It was a sign of peace. It was one of the few things that brought the family together. But it was in a war zone. Positive and negative, right? And one of the things that was the war zone was uh, 109 North Willow Avenue. That was the little row home we lived in as a kid. Now, some of you that know me well heard me talk about this a lot. <sighs> Man, there's so many things I could tell you about Ducktown in the 90s. There's so many stories about being a white kid living next to Pitney Village. Let me tell you about 109 North Willow Avenue. It was our home till I was 19 years old. It was the home where my grandmother, before I was born, passed away on the couch. My mom holding her in her arms. It was the only place we could afford. It was the home where my grandfather died. And from a very young age, it was instilled in me that it was on me to get us the fuck out of that home. In that home came a lot of memories. And a lot of tragedy. And a lot of dangerous situations in the surrounding area. So when I was 19, and this is what we kind of call Stockholm Syndrome in a way. Um, I'm 19 years old. I'm at Atlanta Community College. I'm playing some travel baseball. I'm working my ass off in the casino, doing like 40, 50 hours a week as a bar porter. And I just got promoted to bartender. You start making some more money at Tropicana. 
and I just shoved as much money away as I could because we were going to move to Ventnor Heights. And in some ways, that's still my proudest moment, buying Aunt Mary and Mom the house in the suburbs when I was 19 years old. Had to do it. Had to get the out of there. And Aunt Mare wanted this house so bad. She wanted that house on Dudley Avenue. Aunt Mare loved that house. Mm. It was a special house. <sighs> you know, it was just special. But as we're moving, right? Aunt Mare and I are packing our stuff. We get all the animals together. They're crated up. I have my first car. We're gone. And mom, may she rest in peace. And Gloria Neri was an amazing woman. She had me really young. In a lot of ways, mom was like my sister. Aunt Mary was like my mother. And grandpa was like a father figure along with Uncle Sam. A lot of stories go on there. But as we're packing up the leave, it's the last night. And I'm like breathing this sigh of relief. Oh my God, we're getting the f*** out of Willow Avenue. And I'm proud that I played a big role in that. But uh, Aunt Mare, who's the leader of the house, she's dictating, Billy, you do this, Gloria, you do that, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Mom starts crying her eyes out. And I'm like, Mom, what's wrong? And I said to Mom verbatim, we're getting the hell out of here. This is great. And she's crying, I don't want to leave our house. Now, you understand my mom. That was the only house she ever knew. We could analyze that, right? We could say, Mom, this is the house where I had to protect you from a scumbag boyfriend who used to come beat you. We could say, this is the house where you almost raped and mugged. This is the house that we lived in fear because of the surrounding area. And by the way, we're done. We're never going back to this place. Let's get the f*** out of here, Mom. But she's crying. It's the only home she ever knew. And you look at life through, like, these colored glasses, if you would. You know, Mom's sitting there like, She's what she knows. Ventnor is an eight-mile drive, okay? Twelve minutes by car. Jump over to Dorset Avenue or Chelsea Avenue Bridge. We're there. So you go from this moment of bliss to like becoming a counselor for mom and saying look we gotta get out of here mom we have no option we cannot stay here any longer and i always felt bad but i learned from that moment so mom was scared to leave and mom was tough you know like she almost forgot about the brutality um of the area you know i really miss mom but I remember Aunt Mary and I screaming at her, It's over, Mom. It's over, Gloria. Come on. I'm going to pack your shit. We're getting in the car. We're taking the animals. And we're going to the fucking suburbs. And we're never looking back. And I never did. When I came home sometimes from law school, i drive to the White House, right? And i drive by the old neighborhood. I would just shake my head. I don't miss this shit at all. Mom did. And it's amazing how we process stuff, you know? It really is. I think in any relationship, good or bad, or in any situation, good or bad, the ending 
brings these range of emotions. Mom was probably thinking to herself, these were happy times with my grandmother, who I never knew. She died long before I was in the picture. She's probably thinking of a time when she had peace. She's probably thinking of a time when the neighborhood was different, when it was safe. Aunt Mare's the intellectual, okay? Aunt Mare's in my ear. Hey, get those extra shifts. Keep putting this money away. We got to get the f out of here. I'm just like a soldier. Um, Aunt Mare tells you to do something. You go through the wall. That's it. In a lot of ways, mom and I grew up together. I love my mom so much. I miss her so much. But I, I realized that Aunt Mare was a leader. And she was the general of everything. And I think mom was childlike in a lot of ways where there were things that if we knew today, counseling might have helped a lot. Because mom was sad. She didn't deserve to be sad. My mom was smart. My mom was pretty. She was a hard worker. She was never accepted by pieces of shit that she longed to be accepted by. And I wish that she was mentally strong enough to just say them. And by doing that, she would have been like Aunt Mare saying, well, f 109 North Willow Avenue. Aunt Mare was just a badass, man. There was a kid who stalks me today on Facebook that beat me up. He bullied me when I was like in seventh or eighth grade. And I came home and I was like, really. I'm scared of this kid. And I'm in my room and I'm depressed and I'm scared. And, you know, for those of you that know me, 8th grade was kind of a turning point, the end of 8th grade and going into high school. Aunt Mare pulled me to the side. Mom was like, Billy, I'm really sorry. Aunt Mare said to me, listen, kid, you're going to Atlantic City High next year. And you're not going there from Ventnor or Margate. You're going there from here. And if you think those little pussies from St. James were tough, just wait to what you have coming. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go fight that motherfucker. And if you don't fight that motherfucker, I'm not going to sleep. You're going to be a man. You're never going to take from anybody. And I don't give a fuck if you get your ass kicked, Billy. But you're never running from a fucking fight again. And if you do, I will love you, but I won't like you. Okay. Well, I can't have Aunt Mare not like me. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> that led to me wanting to fight everybody. So I'm thinking if I don't fight, Aunt Mare's not going to like me. But she set the tone for things. Set the tone. She was tough, man. I'm eternally grateful because that mentality has led me here, wherever the hell the hair is. Mom was more of the, you know, um... This will be okay. Aunt Mare is like, no, it's not going to be okay. You're going to fucking fight. You're going to study. You're going to play ball. Here's your regiment, Billy. School. Baseball. Work. That's it. I'm sorry you can't hang out. I'm sorry we don't have a car. I'm sorry you're missing out on being a kid, but this is on your shoulders. Get us the fuck out of here. And at 19 years old... Hey, I get it. That was one of the first big accomplishments. Mom and I had very different personalities. Mom was such a special person.
but Aunt Mare cultivated me into this. And we loved each other so much. There was such a bond there. But it was funny how leaving Willow Avenue, it was like a house divided. I'm pro. Mom's con. Aunt Mare's in charge of all this shit. We're out. <laughs> Aunt Mare was special. Well, that was, um, that was the end of Willow Avenue. Aunt Mare's talk in eighth grade was the last time I ever shied away from physical confrontation. And it turns out confrontation in general, as many of you know. If I ever feel like somebody's bullying me or taking advantage of a client, I just lose my shit. And here we are. So. The next thing is the Alki Club. Now, the Alki Club was next to St. Michael's Church. A little gym in the back and a few of us that were wannabe boxers used to train back there and you knew in ducktown you were safe in the alki club you were safe at the white house you were safe at trump plaza and you were in danger everywhere else that was my take on things so the alki <laughs> you know a lot of great memories there sneaking into the club before i was 18 to train and then when I became 18 just living in that place you know that's where I worked out I didn't go to some big fancy gym I wanted to go to the Alki that was the big thing and it was instilled in you from a young age the Alki is this the Alki is that so I think it was like my third term of law school they decided to sell the Alki and we all got X amount of dollars because we were all like 1% owners or some shit like that and um, I was against the sale because to me it was going to be, again, the end of something. So with the Alki, all the mailmen used to hang out there during the day and like the younger guys would come at night. There was a pool table in front, the gym in the back. It was our escape from reality, whatever our reality was. And we all had different stories. And I remember when I got the letter in the mail that we're selling it, and it was an overwhelming vote to sell it. It was really, it was sad. But, you know, I'm in like my third term of law school. At that time, I'm with a girl who I think is going to be, we're going to be together forever. That didn't play out. But, you know, you're with this serious relationship, and you're doing well in law school, and you'd go home for break, and you'd drive to the Alki. That option's not there anymore. And I think that was one of the signs, believe it or not, that when this was all over, law school and the bar exam, I knew two things when the Alki sale hit. Number one, I had to pass the New Jersey bar. I think I knew at that point I would never practice in New Jersey. There's a lot of reasons for that. But I knew I had to finish that. That would be my closure. I kind of knew Michigan was going to be me forever at that moment. And that was kind of, you start replaying things in your mind. You're replaying in your mind the offer to deal drugs when you were 18 years old from somebody you met through the Alki. And you're the only one that didn't take that deal, and you're the only one really alive and successful today. You start thinking about how hard you hit that bag. How you were so proud when you actually took the bag out. 
you know, you start thinking about when you're working till four o'clock in the morning at Tropicana, waiting for those little school acceptance letters and going to the Alki after that and just hitting the shit out of the bag and running. You know, it was like, to me, the Alki was therapy. And now your therapist retired. But here's eight grand. I don't want the eight grand. I think that was the cut. It was like eight grand, something like that. <sighs> Two other things come to mind. Veterans Stadium. Mm, the Vets. Veterans Stadium was where the Phillies and Eagles played. It was such a mecca. And Veterans Stadium got demolished in March of 2004. I went to law school in August of 2004. That was a sign that it's time to leave. Here's what I remember about the vet. First game I ever went to, my Uncle Sam took me. It was such a thrill. Eagles got their ass kicked against the Broncos. You know. Um, and I remember just being so thrilled to be at these games. As I got older, um, I used to take a bus to New Jersey Transit because the bus station was right by our old house, have enough money to sit the 700 level, maybe buy a hot dog and a soda and watch our Eagles get their ass kicked or watch the Phillies lose. And that's what it was like back then. What you used to do when you went to the vet was you'd buy the cheapest tickets you can, right? Let's take the baseball game. And by like the third or fourth inning, you would actually sneak down to better seats. Um, at that point, many of the Philly fans were either drunk or left. And it was really a heartwarming situation. And I will say, when we watch those Phillies and Eagles games, no matter how bad the teams were at the time, it was a treat. It really was a treat. And then when the vet shut down, you understood why logically. Veterans Stadium was the worst football stadium in the world. So many guys got injured. They didn't properly maintain Veterans Stadium. But it was still our home. It's where our Phils and where our Eagles came from. Then we got the link, right? We got the link, and now we got Citizens Bank Park. The Phils play at Citizens Bank Park. The Eagles play at the link. Let me tell you, these stadiums are amazing. There's all this money in the world that went into it, but it doesn't have the same feel as Veterans Stadium, at least to me. Now I know Veterans Stadium should have been man, you know, should have been landscaped better. But there was something special about going to that place. And when you were an opposing player coming to the vet, you knew you were in for a war. We have a culture as Philadelphia fans. <laughs> I went to my first Lions game up here. I was looking around thinking I've been at church services that were louder. When you went to the vet, like a Cowboys jersey or something, you had to be ready to fucking fight. Veterans Stadium used to have its own jail for when people get out of hand. They used to have undercover cops wearing opponents' jerseys for Eagle games. That was special. And when the vet got demolished in March of 2004... It made so much sense I was going to leave in August of 2004. And the last thing I'll talk about today is St. James Rectory. 
What do you say about that place? I know I've said a lot lately. I wouldn't wish St. James on anybody. I think the place was... I guess distorted is the nicest adjective. I'll use this nice term, whatever. When Father Sullivan, when it broke... And the Catholic star hurled that he molested somebody long before he was at St. James. My reaction was to defend him. And I did. It cost me a lot at the time. Sully really wasn't a good guy. And the rectors where Sully lived. Now, I think there was a lot of abuse at that place. I wasn't abused sexually there. There was some physical abuse. There was a lot of emotional abuse. Not just with me, there were others. It was a place that was really a house of the Lord, that was really a house of horrors. And when I drove by and I saw it shut down, I was on a term break from law school, you just kinda, huh. You just looked in silence. And I remember pulling up to where the rector used to be. And I just parked my car. And I stood there, like, my arms, like, folded like this. And I'm just staring. The only thing I can equate it to in pop culture history was uh, that scene in Forrest Gump. And it wasn't as dramatic as that scene, but there's a scene in Forrest Gump when Jenny goes back to her old home, the home where she was beaten and raped by her father, and she starts, like, throwing rocks and screaming because she's blaming that place for everything that went wrong in her life. Here's the thing about St. James. There's been some major obstacles in my life. There's no question about that. A lot of those obstacles for, are from, like, my own things that I applied to myself, pressures I put on myself, cases I took, whatever, you know, whatever. I think St. James could have broke me if I wasn't a strong-minded person. Um, I know it broke others. I don't look at St. James with any love. And... In some ways, not there's not much that scares me in this world. There really isn't. One of the things that scares me a little bit would be going to a reunion at St. James. Here's why. I've never started a fight in my life. I've been involved in more physical confrontations than most. I never started one. I never threw the first punch, ever. Not my style. You hit me, I'm coming at you. But I never struck first. My concern is if I went back to a St. James reunion, if there was such a thing, and I know they've talked about it before, and there were certain people that were drunk, and certain things may be said, I may forget that I'm Bill Amadeo. I may forget about the 
power and money, all that happy horse and I may just start swinging. Because I want to be that kid back at St. James, but now it's a little different. The game's changed. I think watching that rectory shut down brought all these feelings back to me, you know? And I know there's a side of me that there's some anger that has not been addressed. And there's anger towards certain people. And I think in my own best interest, what I've learned is, I'm never going to take from anybody, ever. But I also don't want to put myself in a situation where I'm going to risk losing what I have or what I'm going to get. And seeing the demolition of St. James, you know, there's a reason when certain people send me friend requests or messages and I don't respond to them. Let me give you a tip, guys. I know Google says a lot of nice things about me. As a friend of mine recently gave me a thing that said Google me, LOL. If you reach out to me from St. James time period, I'm not, I'm not talking about the girls, okay, but guys. If you reach out to me, I don't respond. Just walk away. St. James is gone. Veterans Stadium's gone. Willow Avenue's gone. Panarelli's for Mika's. And it's weird just looking back on certain things. Anyway, this one's about closure. This one is about South Jersey closure. Gonna miss for Mika's. And I'm not going to miss some of the places I talked about today, but I'm always going to remember them. Because they certainly build who you are, those closures. For better and or for worse. But what I could say this, if anybody's hanging on my words right now, if you've been through some of these situations in your life, do not let them f***ing break you. Make sure you use that as motivation for your goals, for your loved ones, for your family. Use it as positive ammunition. Don't let the assholes of the world drag you the fuck down. Don't let the bad memories or the horrors take you out. Control that And you know, no matter how bad you want to fall out, life's a poker game sometimes. Don't show weakness when that happens. I'm Bill Amadeo. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 
by calling 800-392-7311.